Hello and welcome to our latest market podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today by Charlie Morris, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Bite Tree Asset Management, a former market strategist and asset allocator at HSBC. He is one of the go-to authorities on gold and Bitcoin, as well as on equity markets and other strategic issues. So, Charlie, welcome to this particular podcast. I'd like to kick off by asking you about your reaction to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. I know you served in the army for a number of years. What is your take on this? Is it something that we should have anticipated? I think like most people, it's a surprise. And a lot of people are claiming that they sort of saw it coming. I guess it was obvious if you think that, you know, you put a whole load of troops on the border because you want to invade. But then the difficulty is you would also do that if you want to bluff. So so how would you know which one was real? I think that we've, um, as society, have become complacent about our values and how we see the world and forget that other people have a different view. And perhaps it's time for us all to wake up to the harsh realities of, of, of how tough life can be. Indeed. I mean, I read recently, uh, reread another book by uh, Barton Biggs called Wealth, War and Wisdom. I don't know if you've read that, but uh, on my basically- I recommend it all the time. Yeah, very interesting because he makes the point at the end there that, uh, you know, we all think that, you know, the end of history and so on in 1990, we all thought, you know, the liberal world has triumphed. But actually his argument was bad things will continue to happen and, and bad people will continue to make our lives a misery. And so it's proved in this particular case. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know if and when it's going to end. But um, we've got to presumably dig in for uh, quite a long period of uncertainty because the military campaign is not going as well as Mr. Putin would have liked. And they could get bogged down. They're obviously going to win a lot of territory. But uh, we don't know where this goes. So this is perhaps something that we should factor into our way we think about our investments. This uncertainty is not going to go away overnight, is it? It's not. And they always talked about the, um, you know, the peace dividend and this idea being that you, know, you should pay more for asset prices if certain geopolitical risks just, you know, fall. So th- those risks are back. And so presumably we've got to take away that piece of dividend that's been built into markets ever since 1990. You know, that's just one point. And I think the, and the other point, obviously, is the energy equation, which um, you, know, you and I have discussed before. And it was, it was always going to be one of those great bottlenecks because I think that people really need to understand the single most important thing about you know, the difference between a caveman and civilization is energy. It really is. You know, I'm just looking at what's around you, the lights and the books and the windows. It's all energy. And, and when you eat a cheese sandwich, you think you're eating you know, an organic piece of bread, organic butter, organic, whatever. It's all oil. It all comes back to oil. And even the vegans with the best intentions are consuming oil day in, day out, every time they take a bite. This world is not set up for 7 billion people to live without energy. And uh, I mean, historically, when we look at the oil price, but also uh, energy prices generally, historically, when the oil price has been uh, rising very strongly, as it has been, and uh, I, well, I don't know how you expect oil prices to go from here, but it has not been good for investment returns in general. The worst periods, both economically and in markets, have come when oil prices are rising at at high levels. Can you see any path to significantly lower oil prices and energy prices generally in the near term? No. I mean, a ceasefire would help. You could have a ceasefire with an easing of sanctions. The American ambassador to Moscow, the former American ambassador to Moscow, was saying that if Russia do something good, like a ceasefire, some sanctions should immediately be retracted. 
and to sort of give them a biscuit. And, and I sort of agree with that, much that it might be nice to just keep punishing, but actually practically we want people to stop dying. And so therefore any means possible for that is probably a good idea. So you know, if, if there were um, an easing of sanctions, that would probably be good for markets. But it would take probably more, you know, the ceasefire would be would be somewhat positive for, for, for markets up, oil down, but a retraction of sanctions would be very good. Regime change would be great with a positive successor. Yes. Well, there's a, a couple of ifs there. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there's, I guess, risk in general terms is not going to go away. The markets aren't particularly good, perhaps at pricing in geopolitical risk or let alone nuclear war risk. But do you think that this, generally speaking, is going to lead to an increase in uh, aversion to risk? And that's going to have a, a knock-on effect to markets, not just in the short term, but in longer term as well? Yeah, I think you've got to be realistic about borrowing. And you know we've done a lot of it in society since 2008 and some before then. You know The, the, the world's uh, budgets weren't balanced really since about 1999-2000. So we spent sort of 22 years pretty much in, in deficit. And um, that's the other bit of complacency. So cheap energy has been one part of complacency, but the other has been cheap debt and living off it. And, and everything changes if the interest rates go up because then the price of stocks must come down. It's just that they don't deserve to be where they are in a higher rate world. And that's the other great risk, the great financial risk. Right now we've got the great real economy risk, which is obviously war, but also energy prices. So, you know, you put those all together and that would be a pretty nasty environment for, for stock markets. But we've seen it before, 1974, and the PE went from the teens to, to the low single digits. And that's what inflation does. So if you wonder why the Turkish stock market's been on four times or the Russian stock market's been on a low number, it's because of geopolitical risks and, and inflation, which have been more prevalent in those economies. And so the stock market's always been cheap, quote unquote, or correctly priced because there's inflation. So I guess then we're all back into this game of trying to guess what the Federal Reserve is going to do. But I mean, they've lost control of the situation uh, to some extent already. They're behind the curve. I think everybody can now see that. And I think they've almost said it themselves. So what, are they, what do you think they're going to do? And Because uh, that's obviously something that the markets will be watching. Uh, what do you think they will do? And, uh, you know, are we going to end up with the worst of all worlds, uh, which is, you know, stagflation, as, as we've talked about? Yeah. I mean, they, they had six rate hikes priced in allegedly at the beginning of this year. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, whenever, whenever I say some of these things are priced in, I'm never quite sure what that means because it always seems to be a surprise when they actually do something. But you know, what we what we're seeing in market pricing is the short term responding. So, you know, the two-year inflation swap or the two-year bond yield bouncing all over the place, taking taking notice of what's about to happen. And the longer term rates and the longer term inflation expectations still not really paying attention. And so, you know, there's still this idea in, in bond markets that this is a passing storm, not something that's, that's a, a long-term change. I think that's going to be the shock when that happens, because that's really, you know, what stock markets are really interested in, is what the cost of borrowing, not just in the next six to 12 months, but what's it going to be over the next 10 years? You know, are, are, are markets structurally mispriced? I suspect they are. I mean, there was a piece in the FT today from the head of Caxton, who was saying that we should borrow loads of money because real interest rates are negative and invest in the economy and infrastructure. I mean, we spent 400 billion on COVID for nothing really, you know, for testing and stuff like that and benefits whilst people haven't been able to work with furlough payments. And we've got nothing for it apart from, you know, some people had a nice summer last year. And, you know, but people are now, we're now scared to spend 10 billion on a, on a bit of infrastructure. 
And, and I suppose he's right in the sense that if the bond market's offering you money at negative real interest rate, then you should take it. I mean, if, if, if someone offered me a loan at negative real interest rate, I would just take the money all day and find something to do with it. Because why wouldn't you? And, and the government's been offered that. But, on, you know, I just said that we're worried about the scale of debt, and that's true. But presumably, if you keep taking the money, at some point that will break. But the answer to the other question is, should you take the money whilst it's still being offered? And that's a really good question. Yeah. Well, in, in view of all this, then, so what's your, your kind of uh, outlook? You're implying, obviously, that uh, equities are still pretty expensive. And if bond rails do rise or cannot be suppressed, <laughs> perhaps a better way of putting it, uh, we're in for a pretty tricky ride for equities. But you're, among many other things, you're an expert on gold and Bitcoin, as I said at the beginning. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about gold, first of all. You know, kind of amateur view would be, you know, war, trouble, geopolitical risk, gold should go up. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad view. It's not a bad starting point. At least you're on the, you know, you've got it half right just by that, that simple amateur view, which I know your, your view is way beyond that, Jonathan. But yeah, absolutely. There, there's been a confusion in the whole Bitcoin gold debate recently about how Bitcoin is a safe haven. Well, you know, it is to an extent. But you can't you can't have it both ways. You can't you know go up six times in 2020 and then see crypto go bananas in 2021 with Shiba Inu, Rufit and all this stuff, and then expect to have protection um, in the bad times that follow the good times. That that would be to have your cake and eat it. Um, but it's kind of obvious that you know gold didn't do very well in uh, late 2020 and 21 when Bitcoin was doing really well, and um, and now it's doing well. So, yeah, I mean, one of the other points is that stuff that people haven't been buying is also a safe haven. So what's done well this year, defence stocks for good reason. Uh, but even before the invasion, defence stocks were looking a little bit perky. Energy stocks before the invasion were looking a bit perky, now very much so. But also things like tobacco stocks, which really help no one. You know, having more tobacco in the world's not going to make Russia-Ukraine situation go away. So it's one of those um, nasty old sectors. But that's done well because no one dare own it. For, for ESG reasons. So I think there's just been a big unwind. Stuff that did work badly in the lot in, in late 2021 20, has done pretty well recently. It's as simple as that. So if you if you literally if you negatively screen a ESG index and say, well, what, what's the stuff they didn't own? That has been a great portfolio this year. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a moral maybe in there somewhere. Um, but just sticking to gold for the moment, I mean you famously have a model which uh, models the price of gold and has been very successful at doing so over the last, well, roughly 15 years or so at least. What's it telling us at the moment? I mean, I, I think I know that it's telling you the gold's about fair value at the moment, but uh, tell us about the model and what it's actually saying to you at the moment in its uh, practical uh, value. Yeah, I mean, I um, have done some calibration work on it recently because essentially what it's doing is taking you to this idea that um, the gold is driven by real interest rates. And that is the expectation for the long-term bond yield and the expectation for the long-term rate of inflation. Now, markets don't really know what that they're going to be, but they have a guess each day about where they think they're going to be. And it's those changes that really are quite important. Those changes really are instrumental in driving the gold price. Um, and there's also this idea that gold uh, protects you against historic inflation. So uh, whatever inflation has happened should be reflected in the gold price. So we can look at the Russian ruble today. It's down about 75% over the last 10 years against the US dollar. The US dollar in terms of purchasing power wouldn't be as bad as that. But anything that it's done would have been protected and reflected in the gold price. So if you're a Russian um, owning gold, then that 75% protection is stored in the gold price for you. 
as it were. And that same idea can be transported into other currencies and other measurements. And then on top of that, you've got the real interest rate. So where is that? And the simple logic there is that when the real interest rate is high, which means that you get more money, uh, more interest than inflation, then the best place to go is the bank. You know, you go and go to Barclays Bank, put your money in and thank you very much. They give you more than you gave them after inflation. But when it's the other way around, then the last place you go is the bank and you should look for protection. And as interest rates go more and more negative in real terms, then the gold price tends to do very well. And that model attempts to calibrate these two ideas. So essentially what we're doing is taking a, a US 20-year tips, uh, Treasury Inflation uh, Protection Security, uh, you know, an American version of it, inflation and guilt. And we're just trying to calibrate the gold price against that because the correlation has been so extraordinarily high over the last 20, 23, four years. And so, you know, my attempt to calibrate is something that needs a little bit of adjustment from time to time. But right now, the, the, the fair value of gold, according to that model, is basically where the gold price is within a couple of percent, which is remarkable. So, you know, it, it does seem to be continuing to play off um, this theme. I mean, people are always sort of suggesting, oh, well, you know, that's just luck and stuff. Well, you know, it, it, it's been lucky for quite a long time. <laughs> well, there's certainly there's, there's some very sensible intuitions behind it. There obviously is a relationship, but in the short term, of course, there's also quite a lot of speculative money moving around sometimes in, in gold. And that can have an impact uh, on flows, I imagine. But uh, I mean, obviously, gold did well at certain inflationary times in the past. I mean, real interest rates at the moment are quite hard to predict because we know they're they're very negative at the moment. They've become more negative in the last uh, ten days or so. Um, but that's partly because we don't yet know what the medium-term inflation outlook is going to be. Um, but do you expect gold to to go higher from here? Do you think there will be kind of speculative buying as well on top of where we are, or is it actually uh, already in the price? Well, I think the inflation expectations are, are just are just unrealistically low. So, you know, I talked about the oil sandwich a few minutes ago, and everything is oil. So the price of oil reflects fertilizer, which, which grows our vegan food, so we can have a nice earthy life. Uh, and then you've got a diesel tractor, and then you've got lorries, and distribution centers, and refrigeration, and all these things. Um, and so it all comes back to the price of energy. And it's just the inflation expectations really aren't telling you there's a problem in the world. And, and so the, the two-year expectation says inflation has just gone from 3% six months ago to 4% over the, over the next two years. You know, oil's just shot up to 130. And, and you hear a farmer was telling me last night that his bill's gone from £60,000 to £160,000 for electricity. They tell me about how fertile the prices are through the roof. And the bond market really, really not saying this is anything other than a short-term problem. The assumption is that if you believe that, that we have peace in Russia and Ukraine, and we have a regime change and all's rosy, and we, you know we put a, a nice person in charge of Russia and all that kind of stuff, great. But we still have a shortage of energy because we've spent you know very little time and effort in exploring the North Sea, fracking, and all the sort of thing around the world, and more generally, you know because there's been this idea that it's been bad to invest in, in oil and gas. And, and it's going to bite us. And then the other sad thing is, you know, just as we're looking at nuclear revival, you know, the Putin military delivery fire a few shots at a, at a reactor, which is just, you know, takes the, brings the whole Fukushima question up for another 10 or 20 years. You know, we've had every time there's one of these incidents, it takes about 10 or 20 years for people to start showing forgiveness. And now they start, they start deliberately mortaring a nuclear reactor, which, which now says, OK, it's a legitimate military target. And this is just, this is horrendous. So that means, you know, nuclear is going to have a tough time. So it's back to oil and gas. There's no other place to go, or possibly a bit of coal, I hear that they're talking about in one or two places as well, which certainly wouldn't go down well with our 
environmental uh, commitments. Um, so, Jonathan, on that is, of course, you know, I mean, this is so obvious, but it needs to be restated. You know, what the hell's the point of UK and Europe doing a lovely job about keeping the air so clean if the rest of the world's not going to bother? What is the point? Indeed. Apart from, well, a bit of virtue signaling and a bit of feeling good about yourself and so on. Uh, but yeah, this, we live in a world where, you know, harsh truths have to be said, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, and they're not always heard in, uh, or have not been heard recently. Um, while we talk about, we just mentioned Bitcoin again, because we talked about gold. Let's quickly mention Bitcoin. It obviously, uh, as you say, shot up, came down again a lot and has picked up again recently. Some people think it's all to do with, you know, nervous Russian oligarchs <laughs> heading for the, not for the hills, but for the, uh, wherever the uh, equivalent for Bitcoin is. So do you think the Bitcoin price is going to do better than gold or not as well or just on a different trajectory? I do know you have this thing called uh, the bold strategy, which is uh, to combine the two. And uh, that seems to work pretty well. But uh, tell me your thoughts on uh, on Bitcoin and how it fits into that uh, way of thinking. Well, I'm glad you've asked me that because um, I do think there's a lot of nonsense being spoken about Bitcoin at the moment. The price is down slightly. Over the, you know, the last 10 days since the invasion. Well, you know, the stock market's probably done worse in most cases than Bitcoin. So actually, I think Bitcoin has really shown itself to be pretty damn amazing. You know, just 18 months ago, you put in the same bracket as ARK stocks. And more recently, you're saying, actually, no, it's, it's left them for dust. It's, it's behaving much better in a downturn. I don't really care how things behave in an upturn because, you know, so what? It's in the downturns when you show your true colors. And certainly on the on the sort of safe haven narrative, and Bitcoin's done really well um, in in this last ten days of this Russian aggression, and certainly over the last you know, this year to date, I think it's performing quite well compared to where you'd expect it to be, given the asset that it is. And there's criticism that you know, people like Janet Yellen are saying we should sanction Bitcoin or access to Bitcoin because yeah, the, the, the Russian oligarchs are using it to evade sanctions or something. Well, there's no evidence of that on chain. I mean, it's, you know, and, and if they were, um, companies like Elliptic could easily pick it up and tell you what's going on. So if you want to police it, if you want information, go ask them and they'll tell you what's going on. But there are four actors in this war. There's the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian government, Russian people, Russian government. And three out of four of them you know, are quite grateful for, for crypto's existence. Ukrainian people, Ukrainian government, they had donations and the Russian people, they've seen their currency collapse. So those who were fortunate enough to own some, some Bitcoin have had some protection and they've done nothing wrong here. It's the Russian government who can't really use this to evade sanctions because the Bitcoin network's not big enough. I mean, they had 680 billion of reserves, which is about the market cap of Bitcoin. You, know, you can't suddenly put 680 billion into an asset worth 680 billion. <laughs> and there's talk about them accepting Bitcoin for crude. You know, it's not a bad idea. And that would probably be positive over time if they started doing that. Probably not, not so much. Much more positive for Bitcoin if they try to buy it, you know, force buyer uh, with large amounts of reserves. But using it for oil, yeah, in the short term, that would be quite fun for Bitcoin. But I don't think that'd make a big difference because Russian export, I think it's about $5 billion a week. So that, that could be 2x to Bitcoin, I think, if you if Russia started to sell all its oil in Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, you could police that very easily and, and you, you would know that. But I think that Bitcoin is, is a bit like the internet or electricity or water or oxygen. You know, it's one of those things we all share, or the telephone network or the oceans. And you can't blame Bitcoin because, you know, Russia are using it. You can blame oxygen. And there are, there are lots of things that we all use. And after a while, you'd have to say, well, it's here to stay. And I believe that. 
And you've got two choices. You know, if Russia really wants to evade sanctions, they can make an alternative system, which I'm sure they will. And they'll probably go down the Chinese route of a central bank digital currency. And why would you have that? Because you can evade SWIFT, you can just carry on, you've got your money, and, and with people who are willing to deal with you, you can deal with them. And you can sell your oil in, in, in that CBDC. So, so that's fine, that would work. But what you're not gonna do in that situation is allow your billionaires to get money out of the country because you wanna have a closed circuit economy. So it's a very good solution for that. And your billionaires who want to go and buy a super yacht, you know, it'd be difficult for them because they have to get permission to, for all that money to, to go and turn into dollars. So it's probably small sums leak. Now, if you had a central bank digital currency coinciding with crypto in the same country and crypto exchanges, then it'd be very easy to leak the system. So naturally, a country like China come along, they like their central bank digital currency and they ban Bitcoin. They, make, they don't totally ban Bitcoin, but they make it very difficult um, to interact with Bitcoin. So the totalitarian states will go down this central bank digital currency route and ban Bitcoin. So the opposite thing to do is to embrace Bitcoin and crypto because we're progressive liberal societies. And any form of digital cash that we have, digital small stablecoin, should be a private sector arrangement. So it should be run by the banks or by the fintechs or by Master Vida Card, these sorts of people, or the crypto people like Circle. So, you know, that's the world. Just there's a, there's a new Cold War. And in digital, you can either be, I love crypto and private sector digital cash, or you want to be in the other camp, the totalitarian camp, where you ban crypto and you embrace central bank digital currency. And I think most people haven't thought about this properly because there's some clever people writing absolute nonsense and just don't get it. And they just see Bitcoin as tulip. And Bitcoin is not a tulip. And the reason is is really quite simple, if I may. Am I, am I going on too long? Should I just no, no, it's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm following you closely, and I know everybody else will be following you closely because the yeah. interesting uh, line of argument. I'll, I'll tell you why I don't think it is. I think that the value of a network is something that's underappreciated. If you go back a few hundred years, we created the joint stock company. Before that, you would pay a lot of people for their labor, and they would go and do stuff, and, and there'd be output. And I suppose it was probably theirs. And then if you wanted the idea of external capital paying those 100 people and separating the output from them and the boss and the employees and the management and the shareholders, it was probably all a bit murky. And, and you can imagine how controversial it would have been for some sort of rich man in the pub to be funding 100 people to be working collectively, and he gets the profits whilst they do the hard work. But what a brilliant concept it was, this idea that we could legally organize labor and capital and that sort of thing. So that sort of virtual construct had a huge amount of value in itself. And I think that you know, modern communications have enabled this idea of vast networks. And are they useful? Well, yeah. I mean, they seem to get people's attention. They're, they're competing against Netflix and BBC and they're, they're out there doing things. And crypto has a sort of fundraising capability where you just sort of say, all right, Ukrainian refugees need some help and bang, something happens. We've got a capitalist project that is profit seeking and bang, loads of money just gets raised. And so I think that you just sort of got the crowd's attention. The wealth in crypto is now permanent because, you know, you've got nearly $200 billion in stable coins, you know, cash dollars ready to buy crypto, which wasn't the case in previous cycles. So you know, there was no natural buyer apart from cash that had to go from old-fashioned bank account to crypto exchange buy. Now the crypto cash is just sitting there waiting to buy. So you've got natural demand. Volatility is coming down. It's here to stay. And of those two uh, options you mentioned there, 
the kind of policy response in the West, if you like, to Bitcoin. You obviously clearly think that banning uh, crypto would not be a good solution. I don't think it's something that Europeans or Americans should be doing. I think it's something the Chinese and the Russians should be doing. Right. So, What kind of society do you want to live in? Absolutely. Certainly not one in which um, the central bank or whoever it is, is tracking everything you do. Absolutely not. I mean, the other thing point about, you know, coming back to where we are, Ukraine and so on, sanctions and, and the things that they've done, you know, threatening to freeze central bank assets and so on. I mean, that is a dangerous course because, you know, it's not always effective. But if it is effective, uh, certainly the latter part, the, the uh, freezing central bank assets, I mean, that is, I saw it described as a, a financial nuclear bomb in some ways, because you're basically, uh, you know, you're taking away half the reserves that the Russians have accumulated. What do you say to that? It is dangerous. I mean, it's, we have done economic total war on Russia. And that's, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, there's total war in Ukraine, as far as they're concerned, aren't there? But it's limited war for Russia. But you've got this um, huge response. And the reason we've done this huge response is because the Russians spent eight years preparing for sanctions by having loads of reserves and saying, well, actually, if you make sanctions, we'll be so rich, what do we care? And so they've gone and taken away. Well, they haven't stolen their money, but they've sort of blocked it, haven't they? So I presume that if a good actor came to power, they'd, they'd get it back again. I, at least I hope that's how it's, how it's designed. But it is a pretty extreme reaction. And of course, somebody's going to buy back on us. You know, we, we are going to have a lot more economic pain from this than we realise. Not just the oil price, other sort of supply chain things, um, maybe some stress in the banking system, some defaults in loans. And who knows, this could easily be an 08 if we're not careful. Because I think people have made quick rush decisions. They're rash decisions. I don't think people have thought this through. And Russia's pretty big. I mean, I know it's not America or the European Union, but but still, it's, I think it's what, number 11 GDP, something like that. And their banking system is pretty important. So the, on the energy side, um, it could cause a lot of trouble, but it also causes a lot of trouble on the financial side. And um, yeah, and there's a war. So it's nasty. And I think that this could be much worse. But assets like gold and Bitcoin, I think pe- people have got their attention. You know, it's um, the 60-40 portfolio that's done ridiculously well for, for ever since 2008 in a world where people thought it probably didn't deserve to, but you know, the historic reasons and why asset prices do well, productivity, growth, so forth. We haven't had much of that. So it's why has it gone up so much? Well, it's financial engineering. Well, that's temporary. I mean, that's not a permanent idea, is it? So that comes and goes. So that goes. That's nasty for the 60-40. And so people are thinking, what would Barton Biggs say, as you alluded to earlier? And I think he, he split his money, what was it? So it was gold and bonds, foreign bonds and gold and shares and uh, property, wasn't it? And he liked, interestingly, he liked Japanese and he, he made the Japanese example of industrial property rather than residential because it never gets confiscated during a war. So if you go to Ukraine, no one's going to confiscate a blown up warehouse. They will confiscate a mansion. He actually ironically mentioned, you know, buy a bit of farmland as well, but that was <laughs> perhaps for other reasons. So in a way, we're between a rock and a hard place here, certainly from an investment point of view. Finally, Charlie, just turn around to what have you been doing and what are you saying to the people who uh, who follow your your newsletter and so on? What's your take at the moment on what people should be doing? Well, I wear two hats. One hat is Tree, where I talk about gold and Bitcoin and the crypto landscape. I think we probably covered that off. Obviously, crypto is under pressure. Bitcoin's probably proving to be a safe haven, but lots of crypto will be under pressure in a risk-off environment, but that's temporary. Putting my Fleet Street hat on, then my portfolios are generally, you know, a chunk of precious metals, a chunk of US dollar inflation-linked bonds, some GBP cash, just because, you know, you would, wouldn't you, uh, ready to buy something, and then some risk. And then most of that risk is 
value orientated so that there hasn't been any tech in the portfolios for, for about a year or more. And they're just proper companies with dividend yields and do something useful and, you know, yawn. But they were just all, what they had in common was no one liked them. It caused us a little bit of underperformance last year, 2021, but we did so well in 2020, they just didn't matter. You know, and, and, and you just knew that having the precious metals was holding you back last year, but you just knew it was a matter of time before they started to move. I had never predicted for a second it was going to be this event that has happened, but you just knew that, that the gold will come good at some time. And you know, when the fundamentals for gold are right, you know, I think it's pretty easy to see gold bear markets coming because you know, good times roll and real interest rates just start rocketing higher and all that sort of thing. And it's just the opposite right now. This is not 2013, where literally it was the start of great times for equities. And in 2013, don't forget, we'd had the credit crisis, we'd had the Cyprus and Greece and the European spreads and peripheral debt and all that stuff. All of those problems. We had so many problems baked into markets. And then suddenly real interest rates start to rise, gold suddenly irrelevant, collapses, equities straight up. You can't possibly have that. It's completely different. We've only just started the bad news. Yeah. Well, I think the final point I was going to make is that, you know, all the uh, you know very successful investors that I've studied and even written books about, <laughs> they basically nearly, uh, you know, all of their outperformance over their careers came during bad times rather than through good times because it's keeping the capital when things go haywire that actually gives you the long-term returns. And you can see that come through every time. So uh, I guess that's still a, a good moral for today. If you can guard against the bad times, and preserve some capital for the good times, even if you underperform in those periods, then uh, then over time you're going to do very well. And that seems to be the lesson of history, at least as far as I read it. It's certainly always been my approach. I had a joke about it at one point, but I've forgotten it. But it was something along the lines of, um, you know, you take zero risk, which means uh, remove, remove the risk of your portfolio going to zero. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so that brings us to the end, Charlie. It's been a very interesting conversation, as always. This has been a conversation with Charlie Morris, the uh, Chief Investment Officer of Bite Tree Asset Manager, and also, as you mentioned, editor of the Fleet Street Letter. Charlie, well, I hope to talk to you again soon, and hopefully uh, the news will be better. But uh, at the moment, it's not easy to see what exactly what that will be. Thank you, Jonathan.